I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That. A little over 10 years ago, on September 3rd, 2013, I saw my very first client. I know the exact date because on September 2nd, 2013, I posted, I'm going to be somebody's therapist tomorrow on Facebook, which was, of course, still the dominant social media website at the time. I remember looking out my bedroom window that September evening, watching lightning illuminating the downtown cityscape across the river, followed by the crack and shake of thunder. We rarely have thunderstorms here in Portland, so the atmospheric grandeur really added to my sense that something momentous was about to happen. And it was. The something momentous that was about to happen is, for me, best exemplified by a passage from Kurt Vonnegut's novel Slapstick, where in the introduction he describes sitting on a plane with his brother, Bernard Vonnegut, who was a prominent atmospheric scientist. Kurt writes, He asked me politely how my work was going, and I said that I was sick of it, but that I had always been sick of it. I told him what my agent wrote to me after I complained again about what a disagreeable profession I had. This was it. Dear Kurt, I never knew a blacksmith who was in love with his anvil. We laughed, but I think the joke was partly lost on my brother. His life has been an unending honeymoon with his anvil. The momentous thing that was about to happen, and this is me, Reva, again, was that the next day, I was about to begin what has been, so far, a lifelong honeymoon with my anvil. I think every therapist probably remembers their first client, and I'm no exception, but the narrative I usually hear from therapists about their first client experiences is about looking back and cringing and thinking about what a bad job they did, and when I think of my first client, I don't feel that way at all. Not because I've never done a bad job with a client. I have. I just didn't with her. I remember standing in the back room full of file cabinets, standing around a table with my other newly minted therapist classmates, looking through a short stack of blue file folders that represented the clients that were being assigned to us that day as our very first caseload. Yes, paper charts. Our supervisor let us pick our own clients, and I remember studying the various intake forms of the various clients like they were tarot cards, straining to see my future in them. I picked the client who sounded the most like me, unsure if that was somehow improper, because that was before I had become aware of the fact that it's the rule and not the exception that therapists are drawn to clients that mirror them in significant ways. I went out to the waiting room, called my very first client's name for the very first time, and then we were off. She was spunky and charismatic and passionate and chaotic, by turns guarded and scorchingly vulnerable, like me and like many of the clients who have been my favorites over the years. And I gave her my all. I don't remember exactly what my all was at the time, but I gave it. I remember writing a treatment plan I definitely didn't follow, a portent of things to come, and trying out some interventions from the modalities that I was excited about at the time to varying levels of success. But even then, I knew somehow that wasn't where the magic was really happening. I felt the magic happening in how in it I was with her. The intervening years have been full of highs and lows and lots and lots of middle. I've bitten off more than I could chew. 
I've been cocky. I've been humbled by failures and missteps. I've underestimated myself and pulled off incredible and unlikely victories. And I've spent a lot of time and energy learning to widen my tolerance for ambiguity, paradox, and the many, many layers of experience that make up the therapeutic dyad and the therapeutic process. I have had sessions where I dug my nails into my palms to keep myself from falling asleep, and I have had sessions where I experienced some of the most exhilarating moments of aliveness of my lifetime. I have been some people's shitty therapist story, and I have saved other people's fucking lives. And I have planted a lot of seeds that I will never see grow, because that is the bulk of the work when you are working with the inner worlds of human beings. I think back on that very first client and the magic I felt with her. Magic that I would carry with me into the next 10 years. Magic that I haven't always felt in every moment, far from it, but magic I have learned to cultivate and call on. This work has become mundane for me, the substrate of my day-to-day life, and it is also awe-inspiring, a wellspring of learning that never ends. So it is in the spirit of that learning that I present to you my very first listicle style episode of A Therapist Can't Say That, 10 Things I Have Learned in 10 Years as a Therapist, Part 1. Number 1. Everything is grist for the mill. This old school therapeutic cliche, which is a cliche for good reason, is usually used to mean that everything about the client's experience, the relationship between therapist and client, even the therapist's experience with and of the client, can be used as fodder for the client's therapy. And while I have certainly found that to be true and to be an underutilized truth in most contemporary perspectives on the therapeutic process, that's not what I'm referring to now. What I've learned in the past 10 years is that everything that has happened to me is also grist for the mill in that it stretches my capacity to empathize with a broader swath of the human experience. Now, I feel like I can't go on here without noting that there has been something of a burgeoning controversy over the past few years or so about whether empathy is actually important in the practice of psychotherapy or not, or whether compassion on its own will suffice, with some people making the argument that empathy is even a hindrance to helping another with their experience. I, perhaps unsurprisingly, think this is horseshit, and that while empathy can certainly be used for good or for evil or anything in between, and it is used for all of those things, empathy is the glue that binds the relationships of highly social animals, including us. And as I said here on the pod when I was speaking with my friend, Dr. Hickson, a couple episodes ago, therapy is not about doing something to. It's about being in relationship with. And how well we do the part that is about doing something to depends on how well we are doing the part that is about being in relationship with. And what I have learned is that my own little human life and all the experiences therein is a vehicle through which I can access deeper and wider layers of what I am in relationship with in my clients. Every loss, every disappointment, every shame spiral, every failure, every dark night of the soul, every heartbreak, every self-betrayal, and conversely, every triumph, every course correction, every moment of hard-won joy. Every act of self-allyship and integrity, 
All of these are potential points of connection between me and another that if used skillfully can help open the doorway between my inner world and theirs. Everything that happens to me, everything I experience can potentially be used in my daily work in the service of another. Everything is grist for the mill. I regularly have moments of wonder that I get to experience this kind of redemptive utility for my most difficult experiences of being a human on this planet. In grad school, I had a post-it note stuck to my bookcase with a quote from the philosopher Seneca on it, I am human and let nothing human be alien to me. Of course, there are some human experiences that are alien to me, some of which I fervently hope remain so. But to be able to use my personal familiarity with some of the depths of human suffering to join with and transmute some of the suffering of another human being is an opportunity that is not often afforded to many. But by the nature of this work, it is often afforded to me. And that is a gift that I do not take for granted. Number two. I have to make a different therapy with every client. In my first semester of grad school, one of my professors told my cohort that even after 30 years of practice, he still felt anxious every time he met with a new client for the first time. This was both dismaying and comforting. Dismaying because who among us doesn't long for a finish line to life's gauntlet of anxieties? And comforting because it seemed to mean that we didn't have to reach that imaginary finish line before getting down to the business of helping people. A third of that distance into my own career, I've come to understand that part of the anxiety I feel when I meet with a client for the first time is not just the ordinary bumps and awkwardness of meeting and connecting with someone new. It's that I am about to forge a new path with someone to set out on a specific journey that, while it will almost certainly contain some familiar terrain, I have never taken before. Every client teaches me how to be their therapist sometimes because they tell me, but mostly because they show me. Sometimes this is relatively straightforward, and sometimes it is an extremely complex, delicate process of negotiation and power struggle played out through multiple iterations of rupture and repair. Often when we talk about this experience of making a different therapy with each client, we characterize it in terms of therapeutic tools that each client needs and responds to a different combination of interventions from the therapist's toolbox. And while that is on some level correct, looking at it through this lens keeps us from accessing a much larger and more interesting truth. Human consciousness, after all, is not a car engine that we fix by simply applying the right tool or changing out the right parts. Remember, therapy is about being in relationship with, not doing something to. Even when I am using the tools from my most dearly held therapeutic toolbox, my trauma processing modality, I am using them in the context of the relational constellation that my client and I have co-created. I make a different therapy with every client because this particular relationship between these two particular human beings and its attendant intersubjective space has never existed before. And it is the landscape of this intersubjective space that I must use my knowledge, wisdom, expertise, and yes, my tools, to learn to navigate effectively. 
And when I look at it through this lens, I find a lot more appreciation for both the difficulty of this complex, multifaceted work that we do and the unique beauty of the relationship that I form with each client, which has never existed before in all the worlds and never will again. Number three, therapy is an emergent process. Because I make a different therapy with each client, one that arises out of the unique intersubjective space that exists between me and that individual, the therapeutic relationship is a system with emergent properties, and the therapeutic process is an emergent one. An emergent system is one that is composed of individual actors that interact in organic and dynamic ways, and whose interactions create something that is more than the sum of its parts. The results of the actions taken in an emergent process are often unpredictable. Not just unpredicted, but unpredictable. We can see this writ large in the emergent process of the evolution of life on Earth. No one standing on the surface of the planet 3.5 billion years ago, watching the first single-celled life forms appear at the convergence of magma and water, could have predicted that those simplest of organisms would eventually transform the surface of that same planet into the one we inhabit now, in all of its riotous complexity and variability. We can look back and see how we got here, and we can look around us and see a direction we are currently going in, but we cannot fast forward into the future and predict exactly where evolution will take all of us next. The poet Wendell Berry speaks eloquently of the emergent properties of relationship in his essay on poetry and marriage, the use of old forms. He writes, in joining one another, we must join ourselves to the unknown. We can join one another only by joining the unknown. We must not be misled by the procedures of experimental thought. In life, in the world, we are never given two known results to choose between, but only one result that we choose without knowing what it is. Watching this unpredictable emergent process at play over these 10 years has taught me to be prepared for surprises. As much as I attempt to track the complex, many-layered relational dance that takes place in the therapeutic dyad, unseen and unthought forces are always acting upon and within it effectuating unexpected outcomes. Sometimes I'm certain I've made a costly relational error that I'll have to put great effort into repairing, only to learn that my ostensible error has precipitated an important insight for my client. And sometimes I craft what I expect to be an elegant and impactful intervention, deploy it, and find that it lands a thousand miles away, nowhere near the client. I have learned to hold the idea of treatment goals lightly because I cannot always predict what it will be that makes my clients feel more whole, more alive, more aligned with themselves, more at home in themselves. I can stack the deck, and I try to, and I can accrue more knowledge and expertise and seek out sources of learning, and I do. And all of that which I accrue adds to a richer matrix of what I contribute to this emergent process that we call therapy. And after participating in that process many, many times over these 10 years, it is that process and the wholeness with which I invest myself in it that I have come to place my faith in. And here I quote Wendell Berry again from the same essay I referenced a moment ago. 
That faith has nothing to do with what is usually called optimism. Not everything that we stay to find out will make us happy. The faith, rather, is that by staying, and only by staying, we will learn something of the truth, that the truth is good to know, and that it is always both different and larger than we thought. Number four. The best therapeutic work takes place on the level of the unfixable. In one of my first classes in grad school, a professor had us read a book whose name I have since lost to the sands of time and really had no particular reason to remember because it really wasn't very good. The author of this book detailed her experience as a beginning clinician, how she floundered, as most of us do with knowing, scare quotes, what to do, until she had a light bulb moment in which she realized that the purpose of therapy is to fix people's problems and figured out that the best approach is to sort out and make a list of all their problems and fix them one by one. (laughs) Groundbreaking, right? One of the weird things about this book was that this problem-fixing model kind of comprised its own theoretical orientation without really saying so or being introduced in that way. And also, I just have to laugh, because if fixing people's problems was as straightforward as all that, our field and our world would look very different. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, humans are not cars that we fix by applying the right tool or installing the right part. But there is a kernel of truth in this hyper-simplistic model that we are trying to do something. We are trying to affect change for our clients. If they end therapy the same as they came in, it means we didn't do a very good job. I think most of us get pretty squirmy about the word fix, but we are supposed to do something. We are supposed to help our clients get better. However, what I have found is that most of the time, We don't achieve lasting, transformative change by aiming straight at it. Those of you who have read Through the Looking Glass, the sequel to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, may remember the scene towards the beginning of the book where Alice crawls through the mirror and attempts to make her way to the back garden of the Looking Glass house on the other side. She sets off on her journey to the back garden multiple times, incurring more and more frustration as again and again she finds herself standing at the door to the house from whence she just came. It is only when Alice tries walking towards the house that she emerges at last into the back garden full of flowers and to the next stage of her adventure. This is how therapeutic change often feels to me. The more I try to target and worry over a particular symptom or behavior or experience the client is having, the more elusive it becomes. And when I walk us back in the direction of things that are not changeable, we usually seem to encounter some change, often dramatic and transformative change by happenstance. Even in my trauma processing work, which on its surface is structured and full of direction and change-focused and linear, at least as linear as a person as nonlinear as I am ever gets, trauma processing is about contending with the unfixable. Trauma is not fixable because it happened. We cannot unhappen things. And over and over again, as I have walked with my clients as they make their way through this kind of work, I have seen that truly confronting and dealing with the unfixable is how we figure out how to fix the things that are fixable. Number five. My clients get the best version of me. 
Perhaps nothing better illustrates this point than yesterday, which was Halloween as of this recording, a day when I truly nailed five back-to-back sessions, did a stellar job in every single one of those, and then rushed home and was cranky and short-tempered with my kid and friends and dogs while I quick and dirty carved a pumpkin at the last minute and herded everyone out the door for trick-or-treating. Lest you think I'm a monster, I did rally and we did all have a good time trick-or-treating, but the point is that to do this job well, which I make a great effort to do, takes relational energy that I often then do not have to put elsewhere. I can judge this a little by trying not to take on too many clients and breaking up my session schedule a bit to try and get some rejuvenation in there, but it is not fully avoidable. That well of relational energy is not infinite, far from it. And furthermore, because the container of the relationships I have with my clients is so tightly bound by the form of the therapeutic frame, it is easier, much easier, to keep the worst parts of me out of it or at least keep them from having significant influence, the way the worst parts of all of us tend to do in our messily ordinary personal relationships. And so my clients get this version of me that is both authentic and true, and is also a version of me that no one else in my life really gets consistently. Those of you who are regular listeners know that I'm a third-generation therapist because I mention it in at least like 60% of my episodes, My mom was a school counselor, and I remember going through a phase around middle school or so where I felt jealous and resentful of her students and made some grumbling accusations about her caring more about them than she did about me. As tumultuous and embittered as my relationship with my mother could be, this wasn't true. She would have thrown herself in front of a bus for me and probably not for most of her students. She didn't care about them more. However, I do think that what I was perceiving and translating into this idea that she cared about them more than she cared about me was the reality that they were getting the best version of her. As a third-generation therapist, I used to look at the therapists in my family and see this reality as a personal failing of theirs. And to be living that reality from the other side now and to see that it is at least to some significant degree not avoidable is humbling, to say the least. I can try to do a better, more congruent job than my mom did, than my grandparents did, but I will never fully achieve that congruence. Maybe it's not desirable. I'm 50-50 on that one still, but it's definitely not possible. This has been part one of 10 things I've learned in 10 years as a therapist. Come back in two weeks for part two, which will also be my final episode of the season and of 2023. If you're enjoying A Therapist Can't Say That, please rate, review, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And please don't forget to share the show with a therapist friend who you know really wants to join us in talking about the things it feels like a therapist can't say. As always, you can find me, Reva Stout, at intothewoodsportland.com. I love hearing your thoughts, feedback, critiques, complaints, compliments, suggestions, and of course, your a therapist can't say that moments. Feel free to reach out to me via email or sending me a voice note to reva at intothewoodsportland.com. Talk to you next time.